Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday, another busy day. We will keep you updated on what's happening in the United States. We're now hearing from Georgia's Secretary of State saying there are now just north of 47,000 ballots left to be counted in Georgia. So we will keep tabs on that and again, bring you any updates as they are available. Also coming up on the program today, curfews and more restrictions taking place in some parts of Europe. We are going to check in with Eric Regulli, who is with the Globe and Mail, and Shane Woodford as well on a very strange story out of Denmark. And it has to do with the infection of mink in that country. That has led to some more restrictions as well. Shane is going to join us in the second hour of the program. Let's start, though, with the topic of funding. And we can all remember, I think, when mayors and civic governments were asking for federal funding, needing that money for various different initiatives, mainly, though, to keep the lights on, you might say, in civic city halls, recreation centers, to keep things running in the midst of huge financial issues brought on by COVID-19. Well, Vancouver's mayor yesterday said that he was gobsmacked by the amount of money Vancouver is going to be getting. He said he was banking on a cash infusion of about $60 million, and instead it was $16 million. And he spoke earlier today on Mornings with Simi. And for the first time in the history of the country, the federal government decided to give municipalities money to pay their police and firefighters and keep their community centres open through COVID. So uh, an amount was agreed to, and then uh, checks were sent to the provinces to distribute to municipalities on a per capita basis, and that's in the, in the uh, agreement. Uh, so Jason Kenney honored this agreement, and Doug Ford honored this agreement, but as we found out yesterday, uh, that agreement was not honored by uh, Premier Horgan. And uh, we, instead of getting about $60 million to keep the lights on, uh, we got 16. Let's bring in Councillor Sarah, Sarah Kirby-Young, an NPA councillor with Vancouver City Hall. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hi, Jill. Pleasure to be here. What is your response to the mayor's response? Well, I, I, it's troublesome to me. Uh, it's, it's disappointing to have the mayor go out so aggressively, if I can use that term. You know, he said he was gobsmacked and felt Vancouver was shafted and personally called out the premier-elect, when we have such, separate from COVID and some of the pressures that we are genuinely facing, we have such significant issues in our city that we are going to need to work hand-in-hand with the new provincial government on whether it's homelessness, the opioid crisis, um, which is taking more lives in the current health crisis and the pandemic we're facing. And that means we need to have a, a, a good, constructive, open relationship. So it worries me in the sense that this is not going to help Vancouver moving forward to deal with some of those significant issues. Uh, his response was also quite different from what we heard from some other mayors in Metro Vancouver, uh, thinking of Surrey's Mayor Doug McCallum, who responded saying they were pleased with the amount of funding they received. Uh, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, was on Mornings with Simi today as well, saying they were pleased that they weren't banking on a huge amount of money, but they were pleased that some funding was coming through the province from the federal government. Do, do you think it looks poor as well that while other mayors say they're happy to get anything, uh, the mayor of Vancouver is saying he's gobsmacked and calling them out. Well, I, um, I you know, I, I would follow a similar approach to the other mayors. And, you know, personally, I've sent my appreciation and thanks um, to the province for transferring that funding. Um, I think it is certainly fine to have a conversation express, you know, if there's disappointment or there's an expectation and additional funding. But again, keep in mind that 
this um, provincial government uh, that just we're waiting to be formed again and recently um, has placed an unprecedented investment in a lot of initiatives to support Vancouver, like temporary, temporary modular housing um, and other um, desperate uh, needs that we have in the city. So it doesn't help the broader relationship. I think, you know, we want to be appreciative, but I think the conversation needs to continue to point out where the gaps are that Vancouver has and how we can work together on those moving forward. Uh, the mayor had said that he was expecting a per capita level of funding, that that was in the deal, and that's how he had come up with the $60 million figure. But uh, I haven't heard a lot of talk about the difference between the cities as far as uh, who's in charge of transit and the different uh, types of things that cities pay for. Uh, do you think that's part of this as well? Um, I certainly think it is. And again, I think that's where it always makes sense to sort of get all the facts on the table before shooting from the hip. So, you know, something like, you know, Toronto, greater metro region, they have responsibility for um, transit and we do not. So when the feds were making those transfer funding, some of it was towards city operations, some was for transit. So there was a separate $644 million payment in the case of the province of BC um, to support transit specifically in metro Vancouver. So we do need to consider that. I think the bigger picture here is around this has been a real reality check for Vancouver with the pandemic and no question that it's a challenge um, and it's having an impact on us and we have to manage through it. Um, but it's a bit like when you're living on your credit card too close to the line with a $1.6 billion operating budget. If, you know, a difference of $40 million, you know, the sky is going to fall. It shows how close to the line we are on a lot of our expenses. Um, and keep in mind, we've been adding to those and making some decisions I don't agree with, such as providing before we even done our budget for next year, um, merit-based increases above cost of living for our staff. We have some fantastic staff, but we're already adding to our baseline costs before we've had that budget discussion. And I think that's an issue. Um, that's a problem. So this is really about needing to sort of step back and look at making sure that we can manage because we have become so dependent on additional revenue streams um, that Vancouver is is not able to sort of deliver what some of the other municipalities like Surrey did. Um, they were able to reopen their civic facilities more quickly. Um, in some cases, they were able to provide um, sort of more of a hold on taxes um, and increases for this year during the pandemic. Vancouver didn't do that for a number of reasons. So um, I think that we also have to look within and get our own house in order and provide that level of confidence to other levels of government. Uh, this is happening as well while council is going over the budget. And uh, I was listening to a little bit of the budget presentation to council yesterday. Have there been any attempts to find cost savings or does anything stand out to you where council could perhaps cut back and find cost savings in that budget? So yes and yes, there have been attempts. It was, it's been slow going since March. Um, I think that there was a hope that it wouldn't be as bad as we thought, that there would be a, you know, you know, a big kind of bailout coming from senior levels of government. And um, so the, the, the cuts were sort of the ones that you would have immediately expected just due to shutdown of facilities. So there was a lot of conversation around how many staff had been laid off. That was true. But that was simply due to the practicality of things like civic theaters closing and community centers that could not operate um, when the pandemic originally hit. We didn't see a lot of savings earlier on in progressive budget updates. We have seen sort of an increase of savings. We've gone through the operating budget and the capital now. But what I still am not seeing um, and what was presented in this budget, well, is you have to keep um, increasing taxes at a certain level or you will have to cut frontline firefighters or park board workers. And I thought to myself, well, we have 11,500 other staff at the city. So surely there's, you know, there are vacant positions that we can't hold. There's other efficiencies that we can find. Um, there's other sort of non-core frontline staff that deliver those services um, where we may be able to find some savings. Um, I also think in the capital budget, it's the largest capital budget that Vancouver has ever had. There was a lot of trimming done, um, trimmed about a quarter of a billion dollars. But 
um, we know that uh, we're going to have less money coming in uh, from development contributions. Um, it's predicted, you know, for 2021 and into 2022. So I think we can take another run at the capital budget. Um, I don't think that we've done all we can do yet. All right. Councillor, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you again for your time as always. Thanks, Jill. Well, just before the break, we were talking with Sarah Kirby-Young, a Vancouver City Councillor with the NPA, responding to Mayor Kennedy Stewart, saying he was gobsmacked when he found out the City of Vancouver would be getting $16 million in funding for to make up some of the shortfalls brought on by COVID-19. He was expecting the number to be closer to $60 million. And earlier today on Mornings with Simi, Simi asked the mayor what he thought happened and how the formula, how the number was, how the province came up with that $16 million figure. Who knows? They have some formula. But basically, the $45 million that's missing from Vancouver ended up in West Vancouver and Anmore and Belcara and Bowen Island, you know, places that aren't, that don't have the downtown east side, they don't have uh, the same uh, pressures in terms of keeping the downtown core going. Uh, we opened and paid for, four, you know, uh, the permitting of 400 patios to keep businesses going. That's what that money was for, uh, and for this fiscal year. Let's bring in Selena Robinson, who is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing with the province of British Columbia. Minister Robinson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. How do you respond to the mayor uh, being very upset by this amount of money and really uh, going out and being quite critical of where the money went? Well, we've been very clear from the, the get-go that we would work with all municipalities uh, through the pandemic and support them. Uh, I had calls weekly with all mayors around the province, and we said that we would work together. We would work with the federal government. Uh, Premier Horgan had gone out and really advocated for local governments, making sure that uh, the federal government understood that we were all in this together. And the federal government came forward and we, we, we matched. We matched the funds so that we had a, a $540, $540 million grant program. But we always said that we would support all local governments. Um, and, uh, and local governments uh, right around the province, there's almost 190 of them, and that we would help them as best we could. And that is exactly what we did. Uh, we announced how that we would have a weighted uh, formula, that there would be a base uh, framework, and that it's a formula that we've used with the Northern Capital Grant Program that we had been, uh, done last year and then again this year. Um, so there was a framework that we had used before that worked really well and that we were going to use the same, the same framework. So that information has been out and available for uh, local governments um, since uh, beginning of September. Uh, so where do you think the disconnect is in that the mayor was expecting that figure to be $45 million more? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know what assumptions that, uh, that the mayor was making, but we've been very clear that we would have an, an adjusted uh, per capita framework. Uh, and one that we, we'd used before, so that was certainly available. Um, and we also said that we would have a $100 million grant available to help local governments struggling with homelessness. So that's another a, a separate program that is available, it's certainly available to Vancouver and other communities that are struggling with the increased challenges as a result of COVID, um, hearing that, uh, that that's uh, happening around the province, as well as our TransLink funding. And I think it's important to recognize that, that we're there as well for transit funding, which is also um, a key component for the region that needs to be addressed so that uh, local governments feel supported by the province. And we have been working uh, very closely with all local governments on these various issues. And in fact, I got a lovely note today from um, Mayor uh, Braun from Abbotsford, 
uh, another larger city saying, this is great. We have $8 million. Uh, this is really going to make a difference to our community. Um, and that's what I've been hearing. We heard, I heard from Chilliwack as well. They're going to be able to do their road, maintain their road repaving because that was on the chopping block. Um, and it's no longer um, going to be on the chopping block. I've heard from Richmond and from Surrey and Victoria. These mayors are all saying this is, this is going to make a difference. This is going to help us keep things going, keep our library lights on, um, making sure that we can get through this pandemic together. Uh, you mentioned homelessness and the separate funding for that as well. I just want to play you one of the other comments that the mayor, that Kennedy Stewart made uh, this morning on uh, the Simi Sarah show. And I just think like... <laughs> You know, have we fallen off, off the province's radar? I just, I just don't get it. And, um, you know, the, the feds have been coming through in spades for Strathcona Park. You know, the city set aside, we, we just approved $30 million to help with homelessness. The feds rushed right in and gave us another $50 million. Total crickets are in the province. Nothing on, on Strathcona. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it's actually rather disingenuous because uh, we were certainly there around Oppenheimer and helping to resolve that uh, chronic challenge. We've certainly dealt with several other homeless encampments in the in the city over our three and a half years under the previous uh, government regime that we were under. Um, and it was, I think, early September, I want to say, just before the writ dropped, that uh, Mayor uh, Stewart and I stood together around the 450 new homes that uh, supportive housing units um, and how grateful, you know, he certainly was very grateful for the work that we've been doing, the thousands of homes that we've been opening up in, um, in his city uh, with him. Uh, and that partnership has worked really well. Um, and w- uh, frankly, I was concerned that the federal government wasn't very present and I was thrilled to hear that they, that the federal government has stepped in and stepped up and that's good. That's good for all of us, but to suggest somehow that it's crickets or that um, the province hasn't been there, I think is very disingenuous. And frankly, I'm, I'm quite disappointed. The money that was that was put forward, the, the $16 million, the, the COVID-19 relief, mm-hmm. are there any strings attached to that money as to what the city can spend it on? Yeah, there's, there's a framework um, around how, how that money is, is to be used. Um, there's, you know, the expectation that it's to address revenue shortfalls, facility reopening and operating costs, emergency planning and response costs, um, services like fire protection and police and um, computer and electronic technology costs to help with um, interconnectivity, making sure that uh, people can carry on business around a social distance framework. Um, And certainly services for vulnerable persons, um, because we know that COVID, it has to be sort of COVID related, that COVID has certainly created pressures on, on all local governments and all municipalities right around the province. And so this money is to help them get through this until uh, we have a vaccine and we can um, go back to a more normal um, frame of service delivery. So it is kind of like we're talking about two separate things here when the mayor did bring up Strathcona Park. But we have been hearing from residents there as well. Uh, They were concerned that when the writ dropped, you're right, we had had that announcement about housing. The writ dropped and they kind of felt abandoned in that nothing was being done about that camp, which is dangerous. Uh, You've got legitimately homeless, vulnerable people. They're being used as pawns in some cases. They're being used, uh, they're being targeted, they're being stolen from. There there are people with uh, criminal elements in that camp. But what are there plans from the province? Is the province going to do anything there? 
The work has absolutely been carrying on. Uh, BC Housing is on the ground continually working with people, providing assessments, looking at um, opening up shelters. That work continues regardless of whether or not an election is, is carried on. Those are directions that were given by the previous government to BC Housing to keep doing the work um, to make sure that we have supports in place. Uh, we also announced uh, prior to the writ dropping that there were some uh, additional um, ACT teams um, that would be on the ground providing psychiatric services to people on the ground. So a lot um, of, of, of uh, steps have been made to provide additional supports given the COVID pressures. And that work has carried on through the entire uh, last two months to make sure that, that those supports continue to be developed and put in place. There's absolutely more work to do. I'm very proud of the fact that we campaigned on um, doing uh, complex care for people with very complex mental health issues, looking at places like Riverview and other uh, locations to provide this different kind of housing support for those with very complex medical um, and mental health needs and addiction needs so they can get the supports that they need. Um, And I look forward to getting back to work um, and making sure that we can continue to deliver for people who need it. Uh, There are more calls coming from various politicians about that idea of reopening Riverview or at least making it somehow accessible for people who need Mm -hmm. treatment and need a place. Is that being looked at? Absolutely. It's always been um, on our radar. Um, the, uh, and there's some act, um, um, activity happening right now in terms of some, some development. There's absolutely more work to do with First Nation uh, in the area, the Coquitlam First Nation, and also to take a look at how to best use um, the, the land there. It's not, um, it's still fairly isolated. There's not a lot of transit. There's no, there's no, uh, it's not walkable. It's on the side of a mountain, of course. Um, and so using it in a, in a short term is not ideal, but having some long-term uh, plans is absolutely um, on the table. We talked about it as part of the platform and I'm really thrilled to, uh, you know, be able to form the next government so that we can act on those, uh, on those plans. All right. And just before I let you go, circling back to the mayor's criticism of the government, he did come out and say he felt that the province has reneged on the federal agreement. We were talking with Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young earlier. She's of the mindset that council shouldn't be depending on government handouts, that these types of special funding announcements. What advice would you give the mayor who's angry at the provincial government, who feels like he's been given a $45 million shortfall? Well, first of all, we need to remember that this is a joint federal um, and provincial um, grant that uh, is matched 50-50. So it's from two orders of government. And and we always said that it would be a adjusted per capita uh, and that we we provided a framework for how that would be. How he made assumptions of of what um, his allocation should be is, uh, I I don't understand how he got there, but we provided a framework some months ago. Um, And um, and I I think that um, all orders of government have a responsibility to budget thoughtfully and carefully and that we all have to be working together at the end of the day the end of the day, our, our citizens, our constituents want their orders of government to be working collaboratively to deliver for them. And I don't know that, um, you know, um, finger pointing is, is helpful. Um, it's certainly not my experience. My lived experience is that we do better when we all work together, when we find a path forward. And I look forward to continuing to do that with the city of Vancouver. All right. We'll leave it there. Selena Robinson, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.
Well, this is a rather disturbing story coming out of Denmark, that country planning to cull up to 17 million mink, and that is in an effort to stop a mutated coronavirus. And joining us with more details is Shane Woodford, used to work here at CKNW, is now a freelance journalist based in Denmark. Shane, thanks so much for being with us. Always good to come on. Thanks for having me. I, I was following your uh, tweeting of a news conference that was held in Denmark earlier today. So what is happening with the, the mink? Yeah, well, the mink have contracted coronavirus, and then it's, as you mentioned, it's mutated and sort of evolved into a new strain. And as of right now, there are 12 people that have been infected with this new strain of coronavirus, and they're taking it really, really seriously. And the reason is, is the new strain would be apparently, according to the health minister in the press conference, highly resistant to any coronavirus vaccine that is coming down the pipeline. So if this thing spreads, then it basically undermines the effectiveness of any vaccine. So they're super worried about it. And so the problem seems to be concentrated, Jill, in northern Jutland, which is the sort of long peninsula of Denmark that's actually physically connected to Germany. And what they're doing up there is they're doing an absolute and total lockdown across seven municipalities. And that means all businesses are closing unless it's a critical business like a grocery store or a police station, stuff like that. Uh, Everybody's being told to work from home. All public transit is being shut down. Restaurants are being shut down, but they can still operate on takeout. They're taking it so seriously that people are being told not to go from one municipality to the other, nor is anybody outside the seven uh, advised to go in. And as a matter of fact, even trains running in the country are to stop and not go into the infected area. So the idea is, Jill, to kind of quarantine that area and with fingers crossed, hope to kind of wipe it out with a three to four week quarantine. Uh, So how did this even start? How did the mink get infected? (laughs) <laughs> this is a this is a bit of a crazy story. So uh, the short answer is they're not 100% sure, but the working theory goes like this. And this comes from uh, scientists at the University of Copenhagen uh, who are looking into exactly that question because they want to know. And uh, what they found when they were doing all of these different scenarios was they began to say, well, you know, there's a lot of birds and seagulls and stuff that fly across the country. Let's try looking at that. And what they found was they started doing testing on, they captured seagulls and were doing testing on them, and they found coronavirus on the foot of a seagull. Now, to be clear, the seagull wasn't infected with coronavirus. It was just actually carrying the virus on its foot. And so the working theory right now is, again, it's not 100% confirmed, is that these birds were literally carrying the coronavirus, somehow transferring it to the mink where it mutated and then passed on to people. That is uh, bizarre, to say the least. So Just a little bit. Yeah. If that's the case, then, because one of the other questions was how this is. So we know that this was COVID-19 that we're dealing with, with the pandemic. But somehow, at some point, when it got to the mink, it mutated. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what happens when a virus goes into an animal. It tends to kind of evolve. And then the question is, can it pass back to humans? And when it does, we're in trouble, which is the evolution of corona in the first place. Um, I should mention, by the way, that, that, you know, they've locked down this one area of Denmark, Jill, in order to try and kill this thing. They they really don't want it to spread. Uh, As I mentioned off the top, there's 12 people that have been infected, but one of those people actually comes from mid-Zealand. So that's the part of the country where Copenhagen is, which is a far distance removed from uh, northern Jutland. It would be like if you quarantined Nanaimo and a case suddenly popped up in Vancouver. It's kind of the B.C. equivalent. 
So there's already questions about whether the virus has escaped, this new strain has escaped the quarantine zone. Hopefully not. Uh, do they know of the 12 people infected then, or the ones, the 11, I guess, that are closer to where the mink are? Did they all get it from mink? Were they workers there, or did one person get it and then pass it on to other people? We don't know the specifics of that. We do know that some of these people at least worked on the mink farms, which is the, the concern here. Uh, so it definitely passed from the mink to these people. And the strain then, the fear, as you were talking about, the fear is that it could be more resistant to to any vaccine in the future. Do we know how sick or if the people that have this mutated strain, uh, are they showing symptoms? We don't know what their exact medical condition is. Uh, That is a question that is definitely out there. Uh, I was asked in the press conference and no details were given. Uh, I assume it's going to be something along the lines of Corona that it can, as soon as you get into different strains, then, you know, you run into problems, you know, off the top of my head, you know, would the same medication or, or treatment scenarios work for this new strain as versus the original strain of Corona? I don't know, but I assume that these are the questions and the fears that are now racing around the health community here in Denmark. Uh, and I know that the, the, it might have been you or, or somebody else put the question uh, as well to, to the PM, Meta Fredrickson, uh, that asked, is it too late? Do we know if this thing has perhaps taken off already? Yeah, we don't know. And one of the things they're going to be doing now uh, in Denmark, Jill, is they're going to, every time they do a coronavirus test, they're going to automatically test for the new strain in order to, I mean, obviously, fingers crossed, they're hoping just it never pops up and they can go through the quarantine and be like, okay, you know, we're reasonably sure this thing is dead. Uh, But the secondary plan is if they now hunt for this second strain in all of the coronavirus testing, and Denmark tests a lot, uh, then they can, you know, theoretically just try and get to this person that tested positive, isolate them, figure out, do all the contact tracing, and then do sort of a backup effort to try and contain the virus there if they find it. Uh, the number seems large uh, when we say uh, we're talking about the culling of up to 17 million mink. But is that a large number given the mink industry in Denmark? Well, I'm not an expert on the mink industry. I was actually, when the story started popping up and it, it's it's not new, it's been sort of cooking away here for the last month. The fact there's a new strain is sort of the new information, but they've been killing mink here for weeks. Matter of fact, they held a press conference about two weeks ago where they discussed how they're going to ramp up their efforts to try and kill about 100,000 of these animals per day. Uh, so I'm not sure what a mink farm holds. Uh, 17 million mink sounds like a lot to me. And one of the things that I learned as I sort of dived and dove into this angle of the story is that apparently Denmark is one of the world's largest suppliers of mink into the fur industry. It uh, contributes something like 40% of the global mink fur uh, uh, so that is that caught me a little bit by surprise, but there's a there's a undoubtedly a lot of mink farms here and a lot of minks, and they're not going to be with us for very long. And when you talk about these new um, restrictions in these areas as well, because uh, we've talked about reopening uh, people returning to some form of normalcy, this has got to, I mean, people will understand why this is being done and get the seriousness of this, but that's got to still be difficult to look at things shutting down again. Oh, absolutely. Um, This is not a largely populated part of Denmark, which really helps. We're not talking about shutting down Copenhagen or something like that. So that sort of helps. That said, I mean, it is seven municipalities. It's a pretty big chunk of northern Jutland. And there's going to be spillover effects, like the prime minister said today. For example, if you're living in one of the impacted regions, but you travel to Albor, which is the largest city in that region, which is outside the containment zone, 
uh, then you're not going to be able to go to your job. All the businesses that are in that part of the containment zone are going to have to shut down for four weeks. Uh, there's going to be a lot of strife associated with this decision, but you, I guess the Prime Minister was kind of saying, listen, we've weighed off the consequences. Yes, there's going to be some suffering and hardship in these regions, but if we gamble and win and we do a complete lockdown quarantine and we can wipe out this new strain uh, and then make sure that whatever vaccine comes down the pipe is dealing with the dominant strain and that other thing is no longer a concern, then we win in the long run. And they're also going to have to dole out a ton of money to the mink farmers who are literally having their livelihoods just decimated right in front of them. And just one more question on testing, because you did mention Denmark tests a lot. Are they ramping up testing or is there going to be any change there? They've been ramping up testing pretty steadily over the last couple of months here. They've really, really focused on testing. Uh, The goal in Denmark is to uh, have an 80,000 test capacity daily. Uh, we sort of flirt between, you know, on weekends to go down to about 40,000 a day, 50,000. Uh, some days during the week, we see between 60 and 70,000 tests. Uh, we've had two different laboratories that have come online with the ability to both be testing centers and to process testing. And a third one in uh, Denmark's second largest city, I believe, is going to come online any day now. And that center in itself will be able to process 30,000 tests a day, as well as administer tests. They're really, really serious about testing here. Not only do they want 80,000 tests done per day, Jill, they've uh, put out a mandate to uh, in 80%, at minimum, in 80% of the tests done each day to have a turnaround of 24 hours or less to get a result back to people. Well, interesting uh, times uh, coming out of Denmark. Shane, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Always a pleasure. You guys stay safe. Well, we are still waiting for some counts in some U.S. states to find out who the next president of the U.S. will be. Let's bring in Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Jackson, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, I know we heard from Joe Biden very briefly. Uh, He was again calling for patience. Where do things stand as far as the vote counts? Uh, we are waiting on results. In Nevada, they are uh, have a hefty number of ballots to count from heavily Democratic Clark County. And Biden is in the lead with a narrow lead in that state. You have to think those ballots are going to help him out. In Pennsylvania, we're hoping that we can get the count completed perhaps as early as tonight. We're expecting an update from state officials uh, in about 45 minutes on the, the status of things there. The lead that Donald Trump once enjoyed is evaporating rapidly as they count more and more of those 3 million mail-in ballots that they have in their possession. Uh, And in Georgia, the president's lead uh, is evaporating at a rapid pace. It is going to be a squeaker in that state because uh, what's left of the president's lead is going away. But at the same time, they have just a few ballots left to count. So whatever the final result is going to be is going to be very, very close there. And we also have been listening and hearing about the various lawsuits that the Trump campaign has been trying to launch, the challenging of what they allege are are votes or ballots that are not valid. What is the latest with that? Yeah, so... There's, there's no substance. They keep getting thrown out, essentially, by the courts or the plaintiffs drop out because there's just nothing to them there. Uh, so it seems as though they're using the courts in all these different states as a way to launder disinformation. And what I mean by that is they're making an allegation 
uh, just to get the headlines out there. And then when they show up in court, there's actually no substance behind the allegation. And we, uh, depending on what station, and I know Global and you've been covering this and keeping us up to date on the numbers and where the numbers are, uh, there are, are some agencies that have called Arizona for Joe Biden, which makes the Electoral College vote different. Is there an official number at this point? There is not, because official is a relative term at this stage in the game. Uh, technically speaking, the states do not certify their results, and that is the only time at which things are official. That won't happen for weeks. So what you're going with right now are media projections. And the reason the Associated Press, which Global uses, and Fox News have called Arizona is they feel that the numbers are there for Joe Biden, but others don't yet. And this is going to put us in a very interesting situation, because what happens if we get a clear call in a state like a Pennsylvania or Nevada that is going to force AP or Fox News to potentially call the presidency for Joe Biden when other networks won't be in that position because they haven't made a determination about Arizona yet. So hopefully Arizona delivers some results here in the next 24 hours that give everybody a little more certainty. And uh, is it possible, though, I know I was hearing the date November 12th earlier today for some of the counts. Uh, Like you said, we're hoping to get some new information within the next hour. Uh, Could we still be talking about this uh, in days, uh, days from now? I think we're going to know uh, sooner than later. I would say uh, hopefully within the next 24 to 36 hours, we have a result. Uh, when they talk about November 12th, that is for the complete count. but the, uh, and, and you get into the complicated things like provisional ballots, which take a long time to count, but there aren't that many of them. Really, the bulk of the count getting us into the sort of like the, the 95 percentile range where we can see clear trends. That should hopefully be done in the next 36 hours. Uh, And wanted to ask you as well, what are we seeing as far as I know that there has been security beefed up at some of the counting centers? Uh, There have been allegations made that in some cases, uh, allegations from the Trump campaign that their people have not been allowed in to watch, to monitor the voting. Is there any substance to that? So here's the game that the Trump campaign is playing. They are complaining that their people are not allowed in to count the votes even though inside these vote-counting centers, there are both Democrats and Republicans inside in typically equal numbers supervising the count. Uh, These are people who had prearranged to come in as election monitors. So this is a bit of a stunt by the Trump campaign to suddenly say, well, Trump campaign members need to be inside watching, when in fact there are Republicans inside already watching. And uh, both are watching, both Democrats and Republicans, based on rules that both parties have effectively agreed to already. And as far as the security goes, are you seeing any other unrest or are we seeing any other protests or that fear or concern about violence? Uh, as of right now, no. Things have been very, very calm. Um, I, I would worry that if it was a little more disputed, it might not be the case. But as of right now, uh, despite those protests outside some of these vote counting centers, the, the broader fears of violence that led pretty much every major city in America to board up have not been realized. All right. Uh, Jackson will be waiting, uh, of course, and watching as those numbers uh, come in and those votes are counted. Thank you so much for making some time with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, taking a look at the international picture when it comes to COVID-19 in Russia, 18,000 coronavirus cases 
counted for the fifth straight day. We know that Germany is reporting an increase in daily cases. In some parts of the UK, such as Liverpool, all residents are being tested for the virus. And there is going to be the use of antigen tests in nursing homes in Germany as another tool being brought in to help keep residents of long-term care in that country safe. But we're also seeing new restrictions and curfews coming in in parts of Italy. And that is where we find Eric Reguli, who is the Globe and Mail European Bureau Chief. And Eric joins us now to talk a bit more about what is happening there. Thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure to be back. I wanted to talk to you because uh, we've been hearing and seeing that several European countries are now reintroducing lockdown measures and new restrictions. Italy, where you are, is one of them. How are things going there? Um, Distressing, I would say. Um, There's a lot of fear in the country. Um, But Jill, it's a different sort of lockdown than in May. The the May, sorry, the, the March lockdown was across the board. It was everyone all the rules apply to everyone in the country. This one's modified, so they're going region by region. It's it's like the UK now. There's three zones: um, red, orange, and yellow. The red zones, there's four of them, are the ones that are in total lockdown. The orange ones are in partial lockdown. The yellow ones are in lockdown light. So it's it's not equal pain for everyone. And what is the status where you are? Well, I'm actually not in Rome today. I'm in. Uh, we have uh, rented a country place in Umbria, which is about a two-hour drive north of Rome. So we're in the country. Um, so I'm, you know, in the country. I'm not noticing the pandemic much, though it is around us. It, there, there is there is terrible community transmission. So when we do go in for a supermarket shop, um, we're very careful. I'm not going to bars anymore for ca- for coffees. Um, because uh, it's 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 widespread. But that's the other main difference between this and in March and April. In in the first round of the pandemic in the spring, the pandemic was mostly isolated to northern Italy. The rest of Italy got off pretty light, including Rome. Now it's the whole country. So you, you really got to be on your guard now. And, and when we talk about the red zones being uh, those areas where where there is that strict lockdown, is that is that like it was though in March? As far as you can't go out unless you have permission or to do essential things, but everything else basically has come to a standstill. Yes, exactly. Um, the the biggest red zone would be um, Lombardia, which is Milan in the north, and Milan, of course, is the financial and commercial capital. So that's really going to hurt. Um, the, the economy here, but um, you're, you're right. You can only go out for essential um, needs, which would be pharmacies, supermarkets, if you have to get to a doctor. Nothing else is allowed. Now, I should say there is a, a national curfew as well, which applies to the whole country. It's from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. You can't go out. And the other thing I forgot to mention is that all bars and restaurants and cafes throughout the country are also have to be closed at 6 o'clock. 6 p.m., and um, which is is going to cause a lot of economic hardship here because this is a country of bars, restaurants, and cafes. The curfew uh, was one I think that that was getting a lot of attention. That 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew. So, what is the penalty then if somebody is caught out and doesn't abide by that curfew? 
Well, if you're out for a non-essential service, I mean, you, if you if look at if you have a night shift for work, you you can go out. Um, it, it's it's fines. Um, I think the fine is about uh, it's either it's just 400 euros, so it might be a thousand euros, but it's a lot of money. Um, and uh, I, it's being largely respected here, to my surprise, because I thought there there's such lockdown fatigue in Italy. Uh, there have been sporadic protests throughout the country um, from shop owners who are just fed up with these lockdowns. Um, so uh, you're going to be you're going to see a few more of those, but by and large, it's it's being respected. But there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. I mean, this is this country was in deep recession before this second lockdown. It's it's going to get a lot worse. It just, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of even wrap our heads around what that actually looks like and the long-term uh, impacts of this. But like you said, the numbers uh, are going up or the, the, the reason why they, they've done this. Uh, how is enforcement working as far as, obviously, if you're, if you're out past curfew, uh, you could get caught. But as far as the zones, are they also then stopping people or making sure that people aren't traveling uh, through the zones or, or are abiding by the different rules in the different zones? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. The um, there, I mean, there are in the red zones. There are there are police checks, uh, you know, at the, uh, on the roads, and you have to justify why you are traveling to and to and fro, and that'll be uh, strictly enforced. Look, it's a crisis here, Jill. It's it's um, you know, they're not doing this um, um, for any other reasons than to 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 slow down this pandemic today. The numbers are absolutely atrocious. There were 34,500 new cases. And um, looking at the deaths here, 428 new deaths. Now, in, in the summer, in June, July, and, and the start of August, we were getting fewer than 10 deaths a day. Now we're, you know, north of 400. We were getting, you know, maybe 10, 15 new infections a day. When it went to a thousand a day in late August, people were shocked. And now we're up to we're up in the thirty thousands now per day. Crazy. And what is it? Do you think was it the reopening, or because it wasn't that long ago we were talking about the restrictions and the fact that the numbers were back, that curve had been bent. Do, are we learning, or do we know what has caused this second wave? Yeah, I've been writing about this. The uh, Italy did a, a great job on on crushing the pandemic. I mean, the community transmission almost went to zero in the summer. And the the Italians, um, the lockdown was the longest and the tightest in the world in Italy, and Italians needed freedom. And so the, the government opened up, and the politicians, who clearly do not understand science, did not listen to the their scientific advisors, to the epidemiologists, and they opened up um, too fast. And the main problem was was the borders. So you had holidaymakers going to and from other countries. Sardinia was a huge problem. So Sardinia in the summer is a party. And it's a lot of young people. And when they came back to the mainland, uh, Sardinia is an island in the, in the Mediterranean. When they came back to the mainland, there were no checks on them. And they spread uh, even uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who has a mansion in Sardinia, he got infected in Sardinia. Um, he's, he's the former prime minister. And um, it just spread throughout Italy. And uh, they just, 
The main problem is they did not, the Italian government and the health authorities did not invest in the infrastructure for, for massive testing and tracing, and they should have, and they could have. It's only now that they're getting up to, you know, 200,000 tests a day. I mean, it's, they should have been doing this, you know, months ago. They should have used a lull in the summer to get really prepared for the second wave, which everyone knew was going to come. We will leave it there for today. Thank you so much once again for, for chatting with us and stay safe where you are. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Thank you. Bye bye.